0: morning, everybody. It's good to see you today. I'm going to turn the wind off over here. We're going to be in Job 32 today. You can turn there in your Bibles. You probably already are there. There we are. The godly wisdom of Elihu. The book starts out by saying that there once was a man from the land of Uz. This man's name was Job. That man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. The introductory verse of each book and often the conclusion offers some good summaries there. And in this instance, that's exactly the case. This would end up being uh, really a good epitaph for, for Job's tombstone, certainly written after he would have died, as the book tells us how long he lived. We would ask ourselves that question. What would a epitaph look like on your gravestone, if there was one? What will the summary of your life be? Uh, and we see there Job's life summarized. Um, none of us probably want to be in the Bible, I don't think. <laughs> Um, Job gets to be in there. All his personal stories out there for everybody to see. But how does the book begin in summarizing this man of faith? Uh, it's, it's a good summary. It's a good summary. As we think about Job, would you join me in prayer, asking that the Lord would massage his word, even that one verse, into each of our lives. Lord, I want to thank you for the gathering of this faith family. On this Lord's Day, yet again. Lord, we know your church has been gathering for over two, about 2,000 years. We know your people have been gathering for thousands of years. Lord, we thank you that we are numbered among your people by your grace, because of Christ, because of forgiveness, because we are unworthy to be your people. Not everybody is a part of your people, and we are. We look forward to the day when we are in heaven. With the family of God, I pray you would help us to keep that in mind more and more. But Lord, we are not there yet. Teach us to number our days as we would live our lives here on earth for your glory as you see fit, Lord. your name we pray, amen. So when we think of Job, I think that we tend to often think of him as somebody who's gone through a lot of suffering. When you think of Job, you think of someone who's been through suffering, rightly so, But as I just read in verse 1, the book doesn't start out by telling you that he was a man who went through a lot of suffering. The first verse tells you about his character and who he is and what his life was like. So when we think of Job thinking about suffering, I think we may do that to the neglect of seeing him as one who also feared the Lord. And you see that right in the beginning, one who feared the Lord. So I want to start today by asking ourselves this question. Well, there it is. Asking ourselves the question about Job's role in the wisdom books. And I believe his role in the three wisdom books of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job is to teach us about the fear of the Lord. Uh, About a year ago, I watched a Bible Project video uh, about these wisdom books, and if you 're not familiar with the Bibleproject.com, I encourage that to be a, a tool that you have in studying the Bible. Yes, use your pens to mark up your Bible verse by verse, but after you 've studied it, look to some of the wisdom of other teachers to see the themes of a book. The Bible Project has its mission to help people experience the Bible as a unified story that leads to Jesus. They go through not verse-by-verse explanations. They assume you've already read that. And they go through and they tell you the themes of books. I watched a video, it was about a year ago, and it was memorable telling me that there is a theme in the wisdom books, in Job, in Ecclesiastes, and Proverbs. And that theme is to have a fear of God. A healthy fear of God, not an unhealthy fear of God. An unhealthy fear of God says, I'm scared of God because I'm a sinner and I'm going to be condemned. I can't be in his presence. But then there's a healthy fear of God that says, I can stand in his presence because I have been forgiven. Psalm 30 connects those two dots of forgiveness with the fear of the Lord. And so I have a holy awe and wonder at who God is. The topic of today's sermon is not to give you a definition of the fear of God, but as the book of Job is is an illustration of somebody who does fear the Lord. It's not as much something you can be taught as much as it's in one simple definition as it's much as something you experience in your walk with the Lord. And the Bible project helped me see that Job, Proverbs and Ecclesiastes go together as a group of books that teach us about wisdom, yes, but that wisdom is ultimately found in fearing the Lord. Books of the Bible go together, and God has woven his word together very intentionally. We're familiar with the first five books of the Bible that go together, written by um, one man, Moses. We call that the Pentateuch. We call that the law, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. We know that Deuteronomy goes through and summarizes the previous three books. We also know that books like the four Gospels in the New Testament go together. We know that. We assume that. What you may not know is that the Minor Prophets go together and that the Jews didn't call them the Minor Prophets. They called that the Book of the Twelve, likely because it would have fit on one scroll. And they have, in their own sense, they have a theme in the Minor Prophets, and they have a theme of the Day of the Lord, the Judgment of the Lord. John Stott said that the primary job of preaching is to warn people of the coming wrath of the Lord, to warn people of the day of the Lord. You find that theme in the book of the 12. Dan has been teaching, just finished Habakkuk. He's going to start up with Zechariah in August after Mark covers six weeks to finish up Sunday school. And so similarly, Job Proverbs and Ecclesiastes have a theme of fearing the Lord. Proverbs is going to tell us the way things normally and should go, but in all things, in the way they go, you are to fear the Lord. How does Proverbs start out? Chapter 1, verse 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. How does the book conclude? Specifically talks to women. And it says, a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Ecclesiastes does indeed answer these why questions and the what happens when things don't go as they're planned by explaining exceptions in life, by explaining that we have seasons in life. But in the end, after all the questioning, In the 11 and 12 chapters of Ecclesiastes, you step out on faith, not just general faith, but faith in God, beyond reason, but after reason, to conclude what? Fear God and keep his commandments. That's your job. Fear God, keep his commandments. That's how the book concludes. So where does Job fit in with that? Well, he's an illustration of somebody on a personal journey in a season of spiritual warfare, loss of financial security, disobedient children, a hint at marital strife, and finally, a questioning of God. But in the midst of it all, what really pushes Job over the edge is what? The second round of sufferings dealing with his physical pain. That idea of questioning God Is a common thing that Christians go through. Indeed, you see that reflected in the Psalms. When I went on my first international mission trip to Thailand, I was 19. I went there for two months as a short term missionary. The book I brought with me to read wasn't John Piper's Let the Nations Be Glad, it was Philip Yancey's Disappointment with God. What's a missionary doing reading a book on disappointment with God? Well, we're all growing in our relationship with the Lord, aren't we? But in the book of Job, it begins and it ends with this theme of the fear of the Lord. We just saw that it begins with the fear. Job is described as somebody who feared the Lord. That's how he's described. The book concludes, of course, with God talking to Job in four chapters, And the word fear the Lord isn't there, but the whole experience is Joe being in the presence of the Lord and being taught the fear of the Lord. Okay, God, I'm sorry. I won't say anything anymore. He's respecting the Lord. He is in awe of his God. I have have spoke, but no more. Listen to Mr. Elihu's very last words. This is the fourth friend of Job, and the very last he has six chapters. We're going to get there in a minute, but I want to demonstrate to you how the book concludes with the fear of the Lord. And Elihu introduces the Lord's speech with this one verse in chapter 37:24. "Therefore, men fear him. He does not regard any who are wise in their own eyes. Job is wise in his own eyes. And he is going to be taught the fear of the Lord. That's the introduction to the Lord's speech. In the middle of the book, we see Job in chapter 28. Towards the end of Job's speeches, chapter 28, verse 28. We see the fear of the Lord. This is one of the first times the Lord speaks through a quoted revelation, listen to this. This is Job speaking. And he said to man, quote, that is, God said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to turn away from evil is understanding. Now, Job is a book written about the time of the patriarchs, meaning about the time of Abraham, because he lived to be about 200 years old. It's one of the older books in the Bible. It's one of the older stories in the Bible. And so this isn't Solomon being quoted. We don't believe that Proverbs was written yet. Where's this verse coming from? I would say it's an oral revelation that's been passed down that Job has. He would have been at the same time as Abraham. We have no idea if they knew each other or if they knew each other's stories. But where's the first time you see the fear of the Lord in the Bible? You look at it, and it's connected with Abraham. Same time period as Job, we believe. First, Abraham goes down to the Negev, the southern part of Israel, on his way to Egypt, a closer part, close to Egypt. And he notes that there is no fear of God at all in this place. Two chapters later, in chapter 22, what is Abraham told when he is tested about sacrificing his son? And there becomes a substitution in the form of a ram. What does God tell Abraham? What is the revelation we're given? Now I know that you fear me. I believe that this passage is an oral tradition that would have been passed on. That is scripture. It says, and he said to man, and this is God's word, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. To turn away from evil is understanding. Again, that's a good summary of Job's life, though he is not perfect in it. If Ecclesiastes is a direct answer, and we covered a whole year on that, a couple years ago, Pastor Rob preached through that. It's direct answers. Kind of like Tim Keller's book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. Direct answers with some personal stories. The book of Job, though, serves more as an illustration, a story to tell us about somebody who fears the Lord in the midst of his suffering. There's a book out there. It's a secular book. It's called The Social Animal that talks about love, character, and achievement. It's a book about sociology and psychology. It's a basic book. It's what anybody that's studying psychology is going to read to understand the descriptions of, of how mankind is social, how we need love, how we build character and achievement. How we go through failures. But the book is not just telling you how we are. The book takes one couple, fictitious couple, and it follows them from birth to the time they get married, these two get married, to the time they live their lives, to the time they get old. It's an amazing way to communicate and to teach through a story, not just straight up, here's the answers. We kind of need both, and that's what we're given. Right, Ecclesiastes will give you the straight up answers. But then Job gives you an illustration for what it's like to fear the Lord. My goal is to preach through one slice of Job. I want to cover chapters 32 through 37 in a sermon series. Today we'll cover just chapter 32. Next week we'll cover chapter 33. And then in the Beginning of the summer, we'll cover a few more sermons dealing with the rest of the speeches of Elihu. Elihu picks up in chapter 32. He's Job's fourth friend, but he is so much more than Job's fourth friend. We're going to understand who the friends of Job are, who the fourth friend is. A little bit of context is going to help. And finding out who are Job's three friends. Before we ask, who is Elihu? Because Elihu is going to be briefly talking to those men. He's going to think that he has a better answer than Job's three friends. Who are Job's three friends? Well, turn to chapter 2 or 3. Let's see where it is. Chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. And I I love teaching uh, John chapter 8, before we read this, I love teaching John chapter 8 to students because it's a narrative. Job reads like a narrative. It reads like like a play almost. There's a couple key players. John chapter 8 has those key players, You have Jesus, you have the Jews, you have the Pharisees, you have the disciples, you have a narrator. And I love taking that particular lesson, printing it out on a sheet of paper, and going outside with the students, and then we read that particular passage as a play, different people playing it out loud. Job is a similar story. We have a few characters, and it it reads like a great story. We have a narrator, we have an editor, or the person who wrote it, which is possibly maybe even Elihu himself in his older years. Of course, we have God. We have the Satan, the accuser, the devil. We have Job. We have Job's family, his three friends. We have younger Elihu. We have God, again, speaking at the end. And so some of those characters are Job's three friends. Let's read this in chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort. When they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him, and they raised their voices and they wept, tore their robes, sprinkled dust on their heads towards heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights and no one spoke a word to him for they saw that his suffering was very great. This is when Job's friends were his best friends. This is when Job's friends were at their best. They acknowledged his suffering and they were there with him in the time of crisis just in presence. But then they start to speak up for the next 20 chapters or so, and they're not very helpful, friends. They're kind of discouraging, kind of agitate Job. There's a story of a traveling evangelist who obviously is always on an airplane, and when you travel a lot, you just end up having good travel stories. Most of us travel occasionally, and it's just kind of the exception, right? A lot of people have anxiety even over traveling. Well, evangelists, they just get used to it, or businessmen, right? This evangelist is traveling in an airplane, and engines start to fail. Well, that's not a good thing in an airplane, right? you got several of them, several jet engines. And, uh, the, but the pilot comes on and says, folks, we're okay. We still have one good engine. There's nothing wrong with it. Don't worry, right? Well, the guy sitting next to this traveling evangelist is kind of like one of Job's three friends. He says, I used to work at Boeing. We have a saying at Boeing, what goes up must come down. <laughs> Doesn't help him. He's like, come on, like I'm freaking out over here, right? Job's friends aren't very helpful, it seems, in their conversations towards him. They were his best friends, and they sat there and said nothing for a week. About 22 years ago, my dad went to the dentist. I went to the same dentist. I will call this man Mr. No Personality. This man, when he finished working on your teeth, he would just walk out of the room. No personality. Post consult, no. How did it go? He was just done and he left the room. Mister, no personality, right? Well, this man did his, you know, typical checkups on an annual cleaning or whatever. He comes and he and he and he goes and he feels even the glands around, you know, make sure everything's okay. And he tells my dad. He says, "That doesn't feel right on the right side over here. You need to go get that checked out this week." And so he does. And through the course of that week, he Ends up finding out and being diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma cancer. Uh, Ends up being one and a half of his lymph nodes. And so he's driving home. He calls my mom and says, we need to meet at home. Talk about end-of-life stuff. You know, the fear of God is before your eyes. You're about to meet your maker, and you're like, I'm a sinner. My dad's a Christian, and he knows the Lord, but that's an intimidating thing. You get that report. But on the way home, I guess it's about a 10-minute drive, then he starts calling his kids. He calls me. It's about a 15-second conversation. Tells me what's going on. I mean, we hang up, and I just get on my knees and pray. My dad ends up pulling over. His eyes are so full of water and tears, he can't even drive, praying to the Lord. Then calls his two friends. He doesn't have three. He's got two friends, and lets them know. Goes home talks to my mom. And that afternoon, he and his two friends just did stuff together. Worked on a sailboat, fixing up a boat of some sort. They didn't have any counseling sessions. His friends were just there with him. It was a meaningful time. Those friends just stopped what they were doing and drove up two hours to see him, just to be there with him. And in times of crisis... When you're counseling somebody, the goal is just presence. Be there with them. It's not a time to quote Jeremiah 29.11 or Romans 8.28. They're out of context anyway, right? It's a time to be there. Too often, though, we, we open our mouths and say things that we shouldn't. Sometimes we're nervous. We've been praying for David Gilrath, uh, his wife, as well as David. This is one of Max. This is, uh, old employees. And David Gilrath's um, wife, had she passed about a year ago or so, and I believe David's getting remarried again. He's a believer. I told David, I asked him about his, his wife passing. I told him, I, said, I was I'm hoping to co-author a book with somebody one day. I got a friend that I'm working with on it. Um, and the title of the book is uh, What Not to Say to Grieving Widows and Widowers. And I said, do you have any good stories? I said, Oh yeah, I got one. This is just, you know, recently. He said, Yeah, one one friend came up and and just trying to comfort me said, Man, I miss her more than you miss than you miss her. (laughs) Are you serious? And it wasn't Max. (laughs) I mean, what are you saying? You can't say that. He's just trying to show his love, whoever it was. People just speak up and and say crazy things. All of us have done it. But his friends acknowledged that his suffering was there, and they were with him in that moment. But the book concludes by still always describing Job's friends as what? His friends. And Job prays for them, and there's forgiveness in the end. And note that there are no such thing as long-term relationships without forgiveness. They are still his friends, as imperfect as they are. But I don't like Job's three friends. We're not going to read them. I got into this whole mess of Job about six months or so ago. I said, I'm going to read Job, and I'm only going to read Job. I'm skipping those friends. For good reason. Let's just throw them in the book of Jonah. Jonah needs those three friends. Jonah, are you harboring sin in your heart? Jonah, are you prejudiced Jonah are you being lazy Jonah are you running from the lord Jonah do you have sin are you hiding something Jonah guilty But then i came across Elihu and it's very golden Who is young Elihu Speech of Elihu is six chapters. He is longer than the Lord. The Lord's got about four chapters, starting in verse 38. Elihu is laid out with an introduction in chapter 32, a conclusion in 37, which simply leads us into the speech of the Lord. And then Elihu's primary speech is 33 through36. We'll hopefully cover Lord Welling chapter 33 next week, and this week we're going to cover chapter 32. Who is young Elihu? I believe he's the pastoral figure, if you will, in this particular story. He's the prophet that's there. He's given a name and a family heritage. What's it say? Elihu, the son of Barakal, the Buzai, the family of Ram. Sounds like the introduction of a prophet, doesn't it? Who would my dad have called after he talks to family and friends? Later on that week, after acknowledging and? realizing what situation's in, who would he have called? He would have called one of his elders, his pastor. So It only makes sense that Elihu is is that figure in here. We know that Elihu is not rebuked by the Lord, as Job's three friends are. And so Elihu now attempts to answer Job's questions of why. And if you read the entire book of Job, you go to chapter 3 and you see repeatedly, Job saying, why? And you take your pen and you circle that. Why? 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 In chapter 3. You go back and you ask yourself, what are the why questions that I have about certain circumstances in my own life, my own short life, which is but a breath? Ultimately, our answer today is that, yes, there are sufficient answers, but ultimately, in the process, simply, trust the Lord, and walk in the fear of the Lord while you're growing in your relationship with the Lord. And so in these questions of why, back from chapter 3 that Elihu is now starting to answer, I want to recognize that there are stages of grief when we go through suffering and loss. A general process, we could say, is it starts out with awe and wonder and shock and surprise at the situation that we're in, the particular crisis, or the or the, uh, the suffering that we're going through. Eventually, though, we have to admit that there's some sort of loss that has happened. We go through the why questions, the why season. Then we have these emotions that could include times of, In seasons of silence, I have nothing to say. I'm grieving. Eventually, though, you tend to demonstrate some anger. Maybe even some self-destructive habits. Maybe you project that hurt onto others. Feelings of hopelessness. Then you, in the process of grief, of healthy grieving, you start to turn a corner. At that same time you have these emotions of mourning and sadness, you have gratitude. And if you're a Christian, you're grateful for your salvation. Nobody can take that. You start to dig in to the purpose in your life. I'm called to do something. And you invest in the relationships of others, like Elihu is doing here. And you arrive at a position of thankfulness without being thankful for the suffering, and that's appropriate. You can be thankful in an evil situation without being thankful for the evil. Please don't be thankful for evil. Doesn't sound right, does it? But can we be thankful for the good God brings from evil? Yes. Can you be thankful in a difficult situation? Yes. That doesn't mean I'm grateful for cancer or whatever that form of suffering is the rest of the story with my dad is he ended up showing at sandra and i's wedding as fat as can be because he was full of chemicals and chemo bald as can be big big man Um, and he went through the radiation and uh, and he's been cancer free for you know 19 20 years by now grateful for for his life right growing in the lord We then come to young Elihu. Well, let me finish the introduction first. All right, verses 1 through 5, we see Elihu being introduced. He summarizes Job's problems in verse 1 by saying that he is righteous in his own eyes. Job will, though, quickly learn humility. It doesn't take much to tell Job to be quiet, and he does. He stops arguing with the Lord. Paul asked the Lord for a particular deliverance how many times? Three. Then he stopped. Job stopped. There comes a point where you question God, you just take his answers and walk in the fear of the Lord. We notice here, over and over again, what kind of emotion does Elihu have in this particular story? Anger. He was angry at everybody, (laughs) except God. He wasn't angry at God. That's that's good. He's angry at Job's three friends. He's angry at at Job. He's angry at Job because he justified himself rather than God in verse 2. He's angry at his friends because they found no sufficient answer for Job. But I want you to know that even though he was angry, he was also humble because it says he waited his turn to speak. I want to note something about anger. This seems to be a righteous anger, passionate anger for doing what's right and for speaking up. We see that Jesus had that in the temple when he saw people being passionate about buying something for a dollar and selling it for two. There's so much more to life than that. Jesus says this should be a house of prayer. Ephesians reminds us that in your anger, do not sin. It's very difficult, maybe impossible for us to get angry and not sin. I'm not Jesus, right? That doesn't mean we don't also have righteous anger. I also want you to note that Elihu is young. That is a character character trait of the younger generations. All of us, when we're younger, tend to be a little more passionate and angry. I think that's just the nature of youth. Some of it can be good. When you're older, you just don't have the energy to get angry anymore. (laughs) Who cares? Let's just be at peace. (laughs) Can't you guys just be at peace? But I want to be right. I'm angry, the younger person says, right? So be active, be passionate. Do get upset about what is a righteous cause. In your anger, though, do not sin. Notice, though, at the end of the book, the last chapter, who is the Lord angry at? It says specifically he was angry at Job's three friends. He wasn't angry at Elihu. The Lord certainly demonstrated anger towards Job, patient anger, slow to anger, abounding in love, right? God was very gracious with Job, just as he's gracious with Jonah. Very gracious with Jonah. So we go into Elihu's own self-introduction. Verses 6 through 22. He acknowledges that he is younger in ear, years. You're aged. I was timid and afraid to declare my opinion to you. So I said, let days speak and many years teach wisdom. In verses 6 and 7. This morning in... Uh, Youth, youth Group Discipleship Hour. We had our annual tradition of the seniors giving a few words of wisdom to the rest of the youth group. This is the last week that John and Ken will meet with the youth group on Sunday morning. They're going to head on over with Jeff and Cindy Fix next week up into the college and career age group. We want them to transition well into that. They're still going to be part of the youth group over the summer, but on Sunday mornings, we want them to go on up there. And those two gave some great words of wisdom this morning. But they're younger, but it was words of wisdom. What does 1 Timothy 4.12 say in a New Testament sense as Paul is talking to younger Timothy? Do not let anyone look down on you because you are young, but it doesn't stop there. Instead, set an example for the other believers In five areas, speech, life, faith, love, and purity. Set an example in those five areas. Young Elihu is setting an example with his speech and his character by waiting his turn to speak up. When you think of youth in the Bible, we often think of David, David, fighting Goliath as a young, rudy boy. We think of Daniel and his three friends standing up in the throng of people. They were probably younger teenagers or so. Everyone thinking, oh, these stupid youth. Bow down. You're going to get us all in trouble. No, they boldly set an example. They made it through that fiery furnace. Did the Lord save those three friends from the fiery furnace? No. They were in the fiery furnace when they got saved. Did the Lord save Daniel from the lion's den? No. Where was Daniel when he got saved? From the lion's den. From the lion's in the lion's den. he was in the lion's den. Daniel was older, however, in his particular instance with the lion's den, we believe. But when, when the When they had to bow down to that idol, though, his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the um, Babylonians renamed them. They stood up, though they were younger. We think of Mary being told she was going to be with child. What was her response? May it be to me, as you say. Think of Joseph in the Old Testament, going through all his trials in his younger years being ruler of Egypt at a young age. Don't let anyone look down on you. Do we think of Elihu as the young man who's speaking up, giving us great wisdom, who himself has a fear of the Lord and introduces the Lord's speech as one being somebody who has the fear of the Lord? But in verses 8 and 9, we continue to see Elihu's humility. He recognizes that wisdom isn't old or young. It comes from who? The Lord. It is the spirit in man, the breath of the Almighty, that makes him understand. It is not the old who are wise or the aged who understand what is right. But he even acknowledges who makes him understand would be the Spirit of the Lord. And the Holy Spirit is our primary teacher. He is the one who teaches you to understand God's Word. That's what Jesus told us. He would be sending a helper. Someone who will lead us into all truth. And who helps me understand Jesus' words? There's no man, first and foremost. It's the Holy Spirit who helps me understand the Word of Christ. With the word of God in front of me and the spirit of God inside of me, I'm able to live my life for God. Wisdom is from God. In verse 10, Elihu says, listen to me. Let me declare my opinion to you because yours wasn't good enough, you three friends of Job. But notice that before he says, listen, he says, I listened to you first. I want you to listen to me, but I have first of all listened to you. He says that, I listened, in verse 11. I searched out. I gave you my attention. I was not distracted when I was paying attention to you. Full attention. That's a lifelong process to learn how to listen, isn't it? Don't you appreciate a friend who actually listens to you? And isn't thinking of what to say while you're talking. I mean, I'm guilty. I got a long way to go. Their answers were not good enough. But Job, I'm sorry, Elihu says, I'm not going to answer, though, all your philosophizing. I'm not going to answer all your questions, you three friends of Job. I'm just going to answer Job's questions. We go back to chapter 3, and we see those why questions that Job is asking. In verse 16, I think we see a little bit of a a nervous Elihu. He starts to repeat himself. You ever been bold and spoken up, but then you just start saying the same thing over and over again? You start explaining to everybody else what you're doing. It's really the thoughts inside of your head. I think we're seeing here in verse 16 what Elihu has been thinking the whole time. The words are on the tip of his tongue. He's about to speak up. And he's like, ah, I'm gonna wait a little bit longer. But now the time comes, and he says it out loud. Shall I wait? And answer, no, No, I am going to answer. The answer here is no, I am not going to wait any longer. He is going to speak up. In verses 17 and 18, we see his boldness. Speaking out loud, he's saying, I also will answer with my share. I will declare my opinion. I am full of words, and the spirit within me constrains me. That spirit there, I believe, is a hint that the Holy Spirit coming upon, if we can say it, this prophet of the Lord, this person speaking God's word. These words that we're reading are God's holy word. Elihu is speaking truth. He is not rebuked by the Lord. And we're going to see great wisdom demonstrated in Elihu's speeches. So should we be confident in speaking God's word based on our conviction, the constraints that are within us. Paul was constrained. He was compelled to preach The love of Christ compels me. It constrains me. I have to do something. I have to speak up. And in verses 19 and 20, he gets even more dramatic. He's just got to speak up. Behold, my belly is like wine that has no vent, like new wineskins ready to burst. I must speak that I may find relief. I must open my lips and answer. I want you to listen to Jeremiah talking about not using your spiritual gifts, about not speaking up. Listen to what Jeremiah says in chapter 20, verse 9. He says, If I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones. I am weary with holding it in. Shut up within my bones. It's within me. I have to speak up. I have to use the gifts the Lord has given me. I have to share what the Lord has been teaching me this week. I've got to share it with my fellow believers. Got to have that fellowship. I'm desperate to know. Elihu has that same mentality. I've got to speak up. Listen a few chapters later in Jeremiah 23, starting in verse 28, just a few verses. He's explaining why he's got to speak up. There's an incredible power in God's word. Verse 28 says, let the, of, of Jeremiah 23 says, let the prophet who has a dream tell the dream. But let him who has my word speak my word faithfully. And is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? Elihu is a true prophet of the Lord. His friends are struggling. Not that everything that his friends say isn't true, but we're not here to study his friends. But Elihu is speaking truth. We must speak the Lord's truth. The next verse in Jeremiah says, Therefore I am against those prophets, declares the Lord, who steal my words from one another, not coming up with their own message from the word of God themselves, based on the Spirit of God, who is your primary teacher. We open up God's word, and we know that it is like a rock, it is like a flint, Context there in Jeremiah reminds us the Lord is a warrior. The Lord is an active God working amongst us. And Elihu must speak up. And I would ask you, are you using your spiritual gifts? How are you each using your spiritual gifts to serve this church, to serve the church at large? Like Elihu here speaks up boldly using the gift the Lord has given him. He's not in the old covenant. We don't have the spiritual gift mentality in the old covenant, but we do have the prophets of the Lord and here the Lord has come upon him and we have been given the spirit in a fuller measure. Concludes in verses 21 and 22. Again, describing the nature of a prophet who's not going to show partiality to any man or use flattery towards any person. I don't know how to use flattery or else I know my maker would take me away. And here Elihu concludes by somebody who has the fear of God inside of him. He is going to speak the truth. And how are you called to speak the truth to those in your life? Not just to be an example With your actions, but indeed to speak up as Elihu boldly spoke up here. So I want to conclude today with with two points. One is that in the midst of your suffering, your job is to fear God, know that, take comfort in that, keep on walking in the Spirit and fear the Lord. Stand in awe of him with a healthy fear, knowing that I have been forgiven of my sins. Job illustrates that for us. And finally, I would ask you to not only worry about your own suffering and your own comfort, but that final stage of grieving in your own suffering is to then minister to others. David said this in Psalm 51. And we have here Elihu ministering to somebody in pain. How are you called to use your spiritual gifts to then minister to each other in your own sufferings? We need each other. We demonstrate that in the prayers that we have every week. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for all of your word, all 66 books, Lord. Thank you for the Spirit of God that is within us, and I pray, Lord, that each of us would boldly speak up as Elihu boldly spoke up. I pray, though, Lord, that in our passion we would be humble and kind, demonstrating the fruits of the Spirit, and being one who has a holy fear of God within us. I pray you would bless each of our words this week, that you would bring us all comfort as we go through these processes of grieving, that we would then be like young Elihu and then minister to those around us as we ourselves walk in the fear of the Lord. In your name we pray, amen.